are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. I invite you to turn with me this evening to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1, the third book of your Bibles. If you are in a pew Bible, it is page 81, page 81. We're beginning the text of Leviticus. Last time, a few weeks ago, we began looking at the preliminaries leading into Leviticus. We looked at the end of Exodus. Exodus sets up a problem for us that Leviticus is is going to solve. The problem is this. The tabernacle was constructed by Israel exactly as God had commanded God descended into the tabernacle, made his presence known, but Moses nor anybody in Israel could enter. Nobody could enter the tabernacle to worship or to commune with God. So what is Israel to do? What is Israel to do now that that they cannot come into God's presence? Well, we now begin to look at the answer. Our sin has separated us from God. How do we come into his presence? Leviticus is showing us through this microcosm of the Old Testament people of God. And so we begin Leviticus with these five sacrifices that begin this process. How do we approach God? We approach through sacrifices. And this first one we look at this evening is the burnt offering. So we'll read Leviticus chapter one. We'll read verses one through nine because verses 10 through 17 basically repeat the substance of verses three through nine, just with different sacrifices. So we'll make comment on those later, but we'll just read verses one through nine for this evening. So hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter one. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Have you ever had reason to open up the United States code to read it? Or maybe even worse yet, the administrative, the code of administrative regulations you ever had to open it up to find something? Or maybe you've picked up a book that you've seen uh, on a bookshelf somewhere. You've opened it up, tried to make sense of what the law is saying. It's difficult. Maybe there's a reason they send people to law school to try to figure these things out. The law sometimes in our own nation is maybe boring or confusing. 
Because if we just open up a, a book of law and we don't understand what's going on, we don't know the context, we don't know the problem trying to be solved, we don't know the terminology, we don't understand what's being said, we're very confused. We want to close it after two lines and read something more exciting. And I think for many of us, the laws of Leviticus are like these U.S. laws, the code of federal regulations. Because Leviticus is a series of handbooks on worship, a series of laws for the Old Testament people of God. And for us, we enter this often not knowing the problem that's being solved. Now, we do. We know the problem. They're trying to approach God because they cannot approach God apart from this law. But we don't know the problem off the top of our head, and we don't understand the mechanics of what's being said. So much of our time, I think, we'll be trying to understand what is being said, and then we can understand, we can draw from that great understanding of who God is. The gospel itself, Jesus Christ himself, is on every page of Leviticus. There are the first couple verses here, verses 1 and 2, I think provide an introduction to the entire book of Leviticus, and particularly to this first section on the sacrifices. We see this is very important. In response to the problem at the end of Exodus, the answer begins with this in verse 1 of Leviticus 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. This is very significant that Leviticus begins like this, with the problem that man cannot come into God's presence. One solution would be for man to, to work himself into God's presence. Leviticus doesn't begin, well, Moses then in all of Israel did this. No, it begins with God calling his people. It begins with God answering the problem of alienation. God is now providing a way into his presence. So we see right off the bat a hint of grace. We see that salvation comes from God, God and his words and his deeds. It's not man working himself up to God, but God coming to us. And that's what God has done to the people of Israel. And so we begin with God coming to Israel and giving them instructions for offerings, for sacrifices. The idea of sacrifice itself is predicated on the idea of sin. There are no sin. There'd be no need for this kind of animal sacrifice. We don't see any indication of it prior to the fall. And it's only after the fall where we see animal sacrifices and humans offering sacrifices up to God. We see Abel immediately offering sacrifices. Noah, Abraham, the patriarchs, Job, all of Israel are offering sacrifices even before we come to Leviticus. So this is something maybe God had, had given special revelation after the fall that this was something to do, or maybe this was an innate understanding. We need to come to God through sacrifices. But this is something that, that God's people had been doing for a long time. And God organizes Israel's worship, codifies their worship with five sacrifices, five different kinds of offerings. And each one has a different emphasis. It's showing us something different about salvation. And we'll be looking at each of these in turn. But today we look at the burnt offering, this first one here. And I think it's probably first because it's the most common. It's the one that the priests were called to do twice a day, every single day, once in the morning, once in the evening. They did additional offerings on the Sabbath and on feasts and on new moons and each month. The fire on the altars we see in Leviticus 6 always had to be burning. 24-7, around the clock, the, the priest had to keep it 
burning. And this was the regular offering presented by Israelites if they wanted to come and worship God. Now, we notice this isn't mandatory. You must offer a burnt offering every time you do this or every time of the year. The priests were required to do this, but individuals didn't have to do this. This was not mandatory, but it was voluntary. But a voluntary offering that every Israelite was very familiar with, as we'll see as we move through. We see this, that God is pleased to receive all who approach him through an appointed whole burnt offering. So we're going to work through this burnt offering. First, we'll see the meaning for Israel. And then second, we'll look at the meaning for us. The meaning for Israel and then the meaning for us. So first, let's look at what this meant for Israel, and particularly look at how they practiced this and the significance of every word here in this instruction for them. So let's walk through the process. How did they go through offering this burnt offering to God? Well, first it began, the first step was presentation. They had to select an animal and present it to God. Now, there's requirements for what kind of animal could be presented. We see in verse 3, it must be a male without blemish. It must be pure, undefiled. It must be spotless. This must be the best from your flock or your herd. And this shows us that God requires perfection. And God requires nothing less than purity, moral purity. It also shows that the sacrifice is costly. You can't get the runt of the litter and bring it to the temple for sacrifice. You can't bring the sickly animal or the one who's, who isn't, that isn't worth very much. You had to bring the best one, the one that's spotless. It's a valuable, costly sacrifice. But yet at the same time, there's provision for all of Israel to bring animals. Because we read the, the, the first part of this chapter that speaks of offerings from the herd, the most valuable. Cattle, calves, bulls were offered. These were very valuable and they would bring them and offer them to God as a sacrifice. But there were also, we see in verse 10, offerings from the flock. Sheep, ram, goats. These could be offered to God, less valuable, but still an important, valuable offering. But if someone was poor, we see in verse 14, they could bring birds, particularly turtle doves or pigeons. So even if you were poor, you could afford a bird to bring before God and offer to him as in thanksgiving and praise and worship. This was for all of God's people. Nobody was excluded from this. The joy of sacrifice. And so all of Israel could do this. No matter how wealthy they were, you could bring what was a real sacrifice for you to God. And so you would bring this animal alive into the entrance of the tabernacle or later the temple and present it to the priest. And the priest would have to approve and make sure it was appropriate, make sure it wasn't blemished of any kind. And one thing I think that we miss if we just kind of go from verse to verse to verse here is we don't understand some more of the context that this was not just a rote operation that Israel, Israelites went through. There was this whole ceremony was a worship service full of prayer, full of singing. And so as they were coming into the tabernacle, they were praying they were singing praises to God. They were confessing their sins. They were doing all of these things. This was a very lively activity designed to engage the worshiper with his entire body. His mind, his emotions, his, his whole body was engaged to orient them towards God and his blessings of the covenant of grace. 
And if we even take a step back, we see that the whole point of this was not the sacrifices themselves. We see this in a number of places in Scripture. Hosea 6.6, 6, God tells Israel, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, the, the offerings wasn't an end in and of itself. It was designed to direct them towards God, to picture salvation for Israel. Or Psalm 51 that we sang earlier, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So you did not bring an animal into the courts of the temple to go through the motions to earn points with God. You came as an act of worship with your heart and your mind engaged to worship God. And afterward, this evening, maybe you should go read Isaiah 1, where God excoriates Israel for their faithlessness for turning to other gods. Even though they're going through the motions, they're showing up at the temple. But God says in verse 11, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. See, it's not about the sacrifice themselves. It's about God drawing a people to himself, God offering salvation to them. And so as, as, the, as the Israelite came to the temple or the tabernacle with a sacrifice, he came to worship God not to go through a series of steps. But we see in verse three, why was all of this happening? Why did the offerer come with the sacrifice? That he may be accepted before the Lord. This is the answer to the problem. This is the answer to, to the end of Exodus where nobody could come into the temple. Now you, you offer the sacrifice that you would be acceptable before God. Enter the tent of meeting. Come into God's presence to worship and to praise him and have fellowship with him. So this was the first step of presenting your offering, bringing your offering. So the second step, we come to verse four, is the laying on of hands. Verse four says, he, the offerer, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Literally, this word lay on, it means lean on, to, 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 to put pressure on, to force down. It's not just laying a hand lightly. It's, it's leaning upon this animal. And when we lay hands on or lean hands upon, in biblical tradition, it, it means a transfer of something is happening or a symbolic transfer of something is happening. And what this, this ceremony represents is the transference symbolically of the offerer's sin to this animal. So all of the offerer's sin was placed now upon this animal, and this animal now stands in the place of the offerer. The animal now goes towards his death the way that the offerer should have been heading towards his death because of his sin. But now the sin is symbolically imputed to this animal, and the animal represents and stands in for the offerer. And then that's why the text goes on to say, it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. This animal will make an atonement for this person, the offerer. He will affect a harmonious relationship because he stands for the offerer. The justice of God will come down upon the sacrifice and not the offerer. And of course, this would be uh, here would be included a song of praise, a confession of sin, 
rejoicing that God would take my sin off of my shoulders and place it upon his appointed sacrifice, that I would be pure. And so there's a laying on of hands. It's the second step. And the third step then after that, the presentation, the laying on of hands, the third step is the killing of the animal in verse five. The killing of the animal shows us the seriousness of sin. This is what the, the offerer's sin deserves, is death, immediate death even. And so as the animal dies there in the courtyard of the tabernacle and the temple, that is exactly what God should do to every single one of us. Strike us dead. The seriousness of our sin is death. And it's a wonder as the offerer is presenting this animal It's a wonder that the offerer himself is not struck down. And this immediate death is a reminder that it is only by God's common grace that all of us live and breathe and have a moment of life. But this death represents the seriousness of sin. Sin requires death. And it's important here to to note who is the one who kills the animal? This is fascinating because oftentimes we think, oh, the priests do all all the dirty work. Well, no, the offerer is the one who kills the animal, who takes the knife and slits the throat and lets the blood pour out. It's the offerer who does that. Worship was not a spectator sport. Worship was not a box to check. It was to deeply engage the worshiper. The priest would then take the blood that would pour out of the animal and then would take the blood and splash it upon the altar. The blood is an image of life. The blood represents life, pure life in this case, because of a pure, undefiled animal. And so this pure, perfect life was being splashed upon the altar as if to consecrate it yet again, to set it apart for this offering that will be offered up to God, a public witness of the death of this animal as well on behalf of the offerer. So the animal is killed, The blood is splashed upon the sides of the altar. And then we come to verses six through nine, where the animal is burned. The offering is presented and burned. But first, before the burning happens, the offerer has a number of responsibilities. He's not done yet with the killing. He has to remove the skin to flay the animal and cut the animal in pieces. Now, it's not exact, we're not exactly sure why they had to cut it up into pieces. Maybe it's to make it uh, burn more easily upon the altar. Maybe it's to make this a presentation of a meal, to look more like a meal. We don't know. But they had to cut the animal in pieces. And then they had to wash the legs and the entrails of the animal. Now, why do they do this? It seems that they're doing this because nothing dirty or unclean can touch this now sanctified altar. The altar is pure, nothing impure, nothing unclean can come upon it. And there's dirt that needs to be washed off of the animals. There's excrement that needs to be cleaned out of the animal. So the animal now, the offering is pure and is a clean sacrifice before the Lord. So they wash the leg and the entrails. And then at this point, the offerer is finished with his part. And now it's back to the priest. And the priests do the rest of this, where the priests take all these pieces, arrange it on the altar, and then burn the entirety of the offering. Everything is burned. Unlike every other sacrifice, as we'll see, this is the only sacrifice where everything is laid upon the altar and burned. 
It is wholly offered to God. There's not pieces remaining that go to the priests for them to eat. There's not pieces that the offerer takes home for a celebration. This is 100% completely and totally offered to God. There's nothing you're going to get out of this and take home as an offerer for your family. This is a pure surrender of everything to God and a sacrifice to him. And the meat is then transferred into smoke that ascends, as it were, to heaven where God is and where God will receive it. So the entirety is burnt. And then we come to the last part of the offering, and it is God's reception. God's reception, we get a hint of this at the end. It is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There's parallel passages with this language in ancient literature of the time. Throughout this part of the world, this was a language that was used to talk about sacrifices to any god. It was a pleasing aroma. God would smell the sacrifice and be happy and pleased by it. And of course, we don't mean that God literally smells it. And of course, Israel is not a pagan nation offering pagan sacrifices. But what this does indicate to Israel is that this sacrifice is accepted by God. But not only is the sacrifice accepted, but ultimately the offerer is accepted. And the offerer can draw near and worship. So knowing as the smoke goes up, this is as it were a pleasing aroma to God. God now accepts me in his presence. What a joyous moment. What triumph there is at the worship service, the climax. We, we have God's smiling face upon us. And no doubt there would be more rejoicing and singing and praying as God accepts his people. And the important part here is we, we see a hint of this reality, that sacrifices were not merely a one-way street. And this is what all the pagans practice when they practice offerings and sacrifices. It was a one-way street. I offered something to God so that maybe God would be happier with, with me. Maybe God would do something for me later. But God initiated or instituted sacrifices with a, a reciprocal element to them, a two-way street, as it were. Because the sacrifices of God's people were a sacramental means of grace for those who presented them by faith. When Israel came to offer, offer sacrifices to God, this was also a sacrament for the people of God. God was reinforcing, restating, signing and sealing his promises to his people. His promises that they are forgiven. His promises that I will be your God and you will be my people. And by faith, when Israel looked to God, he was encouraging their faith. He was growing their faith. And so this is not merely a, a, something that Israel did to, to placate God. This was a means God appointed to bless his people. So this is an incredibly important point. Because as, as we read earlier, Hebrews 10, 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This didn't actually take away sin by going through the motions. This was an opportunity to draw near to God who provided salvation for his people. And God blessed his people when they came to him by faith. So there's recap of these steps. There's the presentation, the laying on of hands, the killing, the burning, and then the reception. And what makes this sacrifice unique is that, again, it's offering of the entire animal. The whole animal was offered and burned. And it operated as a means of grace for God's people under the Old, old Covenant. 
So if this is what it meant for Israel, what do we do with this today? What do you and I do with the burnt offering today? Some might ask, why don't we do burnt offerings any longer? And of course, the answer is that Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice. That Hebrew says multiple times that it's Jesus Christ who is the once for all sacrifice. Jesus renders these sacrifices obsolete because they pointed forward to him. They reminded them daily, yearly, that they needed a final sacrifice who would put an end to all of these sacrifices. And all of these sacrifices were designed to point them to the one who's to come. But these sacrifices to the Old Testament weren't just signs pointing ahead to the Christ that was coming. And for us today, what we can do is stand with Israel and marvel at the grace for God's people then and the grace for God's people now. The grace that we receive is the same grace he has given to Israel. The salvation we have by faith in Jesus Christ is the same salvation they have by faith in Jesus Christ. And in these sacrifices, he was building them up. He was reminding them of their sin, reminding them of his grace and his mercy and his love for his people. And so we look at a loving God here in this sacrifice, a God who knows our sin better than we do, but yet a God who provides a means of salvation through an appointed sacrifice. Oh, how vivid is this this picture of sin, having to slit the animal's throat yourself or the animal having to break its neck with your bare hands. How vivid of an image of sin is that? And that should cause us to to think of our own sin, should it not? Should cause us to hate our own sin, to realize the, 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 the just penalty that is due to us because of our sin. I praise God we don't have to do these things today, but when we reflect upon them, we reflect on the same realities operative today the seriousness of sin, and the glories of God's grace to us. How he has overcome the seriousness of sin with the sacrifice on our behalf. And of course, we do see the inadequacies of this system. It was never intended to be final. Again, it was never intended to actually atone for the blood, for, atone for the sins of the people of Israel. It was designed to point them to the one who would, the God of provision, the God of salvation, Yes, Jesus Christ himself. So we do look at this and say, oh, isn't it so much better? This is the point of the book of Hebrews. Isn't it so much better that we have Jesus himself? Isn't it so much better that we know the God man who came to this earth to die that we might live? Who himself was sacrificed, as it were, on that cross, offering his entire self to the Father that we might live live. This is the only means of truly approaching God. Israel approached God through the same Jesus Christ who is yet to come. And we approach God through the Jesus Christ who has come, who's risen, who's seated in heaven with his father and is coming again. And it is because of this Jesus Christ that God is pleased to receive us. So there's immense joy for us in these passages. Immense joy as we see our sin, but see God's provision ultimately in Jesus Christ himself. Friends, children, this is an opportunity for us to think upon that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to look 
to Jesus Christ. This is a microcosm. God's Old Testament people is a microcosm of this problem of all of humanity. How do you come to God? It is through his appointed sacrifice. How can we come to God? It is through the appointed sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system describes your state. It describes that you cannot come to God but through Jesus. That there is hope in an atoning sacrifice who appears before you, and that one is Jesus Christ. So this is the day to look to him. This is the day to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. It's not your good works. It's not being a good person. It's not making good grades in school. These things do not get you fellowship with the Father. It is the blood of the sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so beloved in Christ, as you engage with the outward elements of our faith, worship here, prayer and singing, standing and sitting, the, the sacrament of baptism with the water and the, top, and the supper of which we are about to partake. Do not engage with the outward elements of our faith in a formalistic manner. But in all of these things, they are designed to point us to Christ. Just as every element of the sacrifice of the Old Testament drew them to look at Christ. Everything we do is designed to point us to Christ. God has given us these means to show us Jesus, to show us the greatness of his love and mercy for sinners. So beloved in Christ, as we engage in these outward elements, look to Jesus. In all things, look to Jesus. He is the one who has been sacrificed that you might live. Praise be to God. Let us look to him in prayer. Father, we rejoice that you have given us a means of salvation, that it is your only begotten Son that has come to earth to be the sacrifice for our sins, to give us eternal righteousness. Lord, we rejoice. These things are too great for us to fully comprehend, but Lord, may you help us adore you all the more look to you, turning from our sin unto you to praise and glorify your name. Oh, help us, Father. What a joy it is to know your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.